Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Shortly after executing Joan of Arc, the Regency Council of King Henry VI of England and France sent the following message out to the French clergy in the king's name. Quote, Reverend Father in God, it is commonly known, having been spread everywhere already, that this woman, calling herself Joan the Maid, a false prophetess, had dressed in the clothing of a man for two years or more against divine law and the estate of her feminine sex, a thing abominable to God, and in this state went before our chief enemy. She frequently led him and those of his party to understand that she had been sent by God, presumptuously posting that she often had communication with St. Michael and the great host of angels and saints of heaven. By these deceits she turned the hearts of many men and women from the path of truth and won them over by fables and lies. She also dressed herself in arms made for knights and squires, raised the standard and, in a very great insult, arrogance and presumption, she asked to have and bear the most noble and excellent arms of France. In such a state she set out to lead men-at-arms, and to command armies and great companies, in order to commit and carry out inhuman cruelties, shedding human blood, stirring up sedition and unrest among the people. She did this while allowing herself to be worshipped and revered by many as a holy woman, and otherwise acting damnably in many other ways too long to list. But the divine power, taking pity on his loyal people, has not left them long in danger, or suffered them to remain in these vain, dangerous beliefs with which they engaged so lightly. Out of pity and mercy, he chose to allow this woman to be captured before Compagne and delivered into our jurisdiction and power and the bishop of the diocese in which she had been taken summoned us to deliver this woman. To him, as her ordinary ecclesiastical judge, this bishop, along with the vicar of inquisitor of errors and heresies, began the trial against this Joan with all formality and due gravity. This then went on to describe her trial and abjuration, before continuing, quote, But it was scarcely any time after this that the fire of her pride burst into poisonous flames, and soon this wretched woman fell back into the errors and wild folly that she had formerly professed. Therefore, she was again admonished in public, and she was handed over to secular justice, which immediately condemned her to be burned. Such were the result of her works. Such is the fate of this woman. And we are now making them known to you, Reverend Father in God, 
in order to inform you truthfully about this matter, so that throughout the parts of your diocese that may seem fit to you, you may make these known by public sermons or other means for the edification of the Christian people, who have been deceived and abused for a long time by the works of this woman. Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.11, Joan of Arc, ever shining, ever glorious. A very happy new year to you all. I think we can all agree that it's simply delightful to have 2020 in the rearview mirror. And while things out there are still pretty sucky and seem pretty dark, the light at the end of the tunnel is there, trust me, and is getting brighter. Before my little Christmas break... We saw Joan get tried and executed for heresy and witchcraft by an English-controlled court in Rouen. Despite all she had done for him, Charles VII had done nothing to help his messenger from heaven. Indeed, he had washed his hands of her, and was instead focusing on his primary goal of flipping the Burgundians over to his side. These were, of course, the same Burgundians that had sold Joan to the English. Today, we will see how France triumphed in the Hundred Years' War and how that led to Joan's rebirth as a true heroine of her nation and of liberty all over the world. But first, I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The letter that I read out at the top of the show was spread far and wide throughout France and was meant to consolidate England's victory. Joan's war against the English had burned fiercely but fleetingly. It had been a holy war, a great crusade in which she had rallied the faith of Armagnac France to her banner and turned the tide of the Hundred Years' War once more. If England could turn the story of Joan from one of glorious crusade to that of heretical rebellion... The hearts and minds of the French people and the crown heads of Europe could be turned once more in their favour. They then capitalised on this by bringing their boy king to Paris to have him formally crowned as King of France. It was not in Rams, like Charles VII had, but they did at least have the regalia of Charlemagne, which he had not had at his coronation. The state of the conflict was now delicately poised, with two men, well, one man and one boy, 
both wearing the crown of France. England still held the north, including Paris, but French troops were hammering at its gates, thanks to Joan. More importantly, however, the loyalty of Burgundy hung in the balance. England could not hold its French territory without Burgundian help. But Duke Philip was caught in the horns of a dilemma. Peace with France could mean recognition of his title, punishment for the murderers of his father, and independence from service to the French crown. The English never stopped reminding him that it had been on Charles VII's orders that his father had been murdered, but that argument was starting to lose its strength. Revenge was no longer the central Burgundian cause. Philip wanted independence, and so he was willing to back whichever king of France could bring that to him. Things then got more strained a couple of years later, when the Duke of Bedford's Burgundian wife, who, remember, was running English-controlled France in Henry VI's name, died of plague. Bedford lost no time in marrying a wealthy and well-connected teenager, which rather offended his late wife's brother, the Duke of Burgundy, further straining their relationship. The war continued to move slowly in Charles's favour over the next couple of years, with generals like the Bastard of Orléans, who had been inspired by Joan, capturing several towns in the north and threatening to take Paris. Bedford was taking a lot of stick for all of this, and in a letter to the king explaining himself, he blamed Joan for the waning of English fortunes. He said that the French were turning against him due to, quote, a lack of steadfast belief and of erroneous doubt that they had of a disciple and follower of the fiend called the maid that used false enchantment and sorcery. The witch stroke and discomfiture not only lessened in great part the number of your people there, but as well withdrew the courage of the remnant and encouraged your adverse party and enemies to assemble them forthwith in great number. This was the first time that the Duke had ever mentioned Joan by name, and this blaming of her for all his troubles is proof that English efforts to damn her name had not succeeded, and that even in death she was fulfilling her mission to drive the occupiers out of France. In 1435, a peace congress was assembled at Arras, the Burgundian capital. The war had been going on, if you discount the periods of peace, for almost 100 years, and it cost untold bloodshed, liberty and treasure. But for England and France, there could be no peace while they both claimed the French crown. However, neither could achieve that goal without the support, or at least without the enmity, of Burgundy. Duke Philip had been playing the political game very carefully for many years now, unpicking the bonds slowly but surely that bound him to England. He also faced pressure on his eastern borders, as the Holy Roman Empire had just declared war on him. His goal then was to free up troops to fend himself from attack from the east and gain restitution for the murder of his father. He looked to his English allies to secure the much-needed peace, but England had no intention of doing so. For them, while Charles still claimed the French throne, there could be no peace. This conference, then, was a trap for the English. France would offer terms they could not accept, thus giving Burgundy the diplomatic cover he needed to break his alliance and agree on advantageous terms with his former enemy. While the war would continue for another two decades, 
in reality, it was only a matter of time before England would be driven out of France. This was a victory that could never have been achieved without Joan. It was she that had breathed oxygen into the dying embers of the Armagnac cause. And while she had not achieved her ultimate objective, she provided the platform upon which Charles managed to win the war. However, it is notable that Charles rarely acknowledged this at the time. In all the propaganda that emerged from the Peace of Arras, Joan's role was airbrushed out. The relief of Orléans, the victory of Pate, and his coronation at Rams were all credited to his leadership and not of the spirit and charisma of his saviour, Joan. But the maid was not forgotten by all. The people of Orléans certainly never forgot her, with the anniversary of Joan's relief of the city celebrated joyously in the years after her death, and her noble followers still held her in high regard. But the stain of heresy and witchcraft prevented her stock from rising too high. Even after Paris had been retaken and the university purged of its English influence, there was little appetite to revisit her conviction. Indeed, it was not until 1450, when Charles's forces took Rouen, the capital of Normandy, and the site of Joan's trial and execution, that the king spoke publicly about Joan for the first time. Quote, A long time ago, Joan the Maid was taken and captured by our ancient enemies and adversaries, the English, and brought to the city of Rouen. They had her tried by certain persons who had been chosen and given this task by them, and during this trial they committed several errors and abuses, such that, by means of this trial and the great hatred that our enemy had against her, they had her put to death very cruelly, iniquitously, and against reason. Now, I'm sure that Joan would have preferred Charles to have made this case during the trial, and not two decades after it, but better late than never, I guess. Charles gave the task of revisiting the trial to a theologian from the University of Paris named Guillaume Bouillet. He had been a junior member of Joan's judging panel during her trial, but had since switched Charles' side. He started his investigation immediately, and questioned seven witnesses who had also been at the trial. The consensus reached was that while Joan's act of wearing men's clothes, even after she had promised not to, was a concern, it was also clear that the verdict was reached due to English pressure. They also spoke of Joan's piety during her execution, praying constantly as the flames burned her body, moving many to tears. This investigation wasn't a total love fest for Joan, It did not once touch upon the issues of the voices and the visions she had seen, one of the most important planks of conviction, and one witness rejected the idea entirely that she was innocent. However, with England only recently being driven out of Normandy, it was not considered to be in Charles' best interest to reopen this wound while trying to win over the hearts and minds of a recently reconquered duchy. So it was not until two years later that Charles' ally, Cardinal de Stoutville did open another inquiry into the matter, this time in Rouen, and came across broadly the same consensus, that the trial's verdict was politically motivated, but there were still powerful and influential people around that believed in Joan's guilt. This was, though, enough to persuade the Pope that a full new trial of Joan of Arc was required to ascertain, once and for all, her guilt for the crimes of heresy and witchcraft. 
It opened in November 1455 at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Joan was represented there by her mother and brother, as well as a delegation from Orléans who provided Joan's family with a home after they had fallen on hard times. Isabelle d'Arc spoke of her pious and devoted daughter, who had suffered, quote, an insulting, outrageous and scornful action, although she had not undertaken anything contrary to the faith. These opponents, without having been commissioned by any legitimate authority, despite the challenges and the tacit and voiced appeals, after having taken away all means of defending her innocence, condemned her in a baneful and iniquitous way, flouting all rules of procedure, charging her falsely and untruthfully of many crimes, falsifying many articles that were turned around and made contrary to her words in order to secure the verdict. And after she had received the sacrament of the Eucharist with the greatest devotion, they had her burned most cruelly in a fire to the damnation of their souls, provoking tears from all and heaping opprobrium on this Isabel and her family. This then was the case for acquittal, that Joan was innocent and condemned by a hostile, illegitimate court. It was powerful testimony, but even with this, and the support of the cardinal and the king, it would still not be an easy thing to prove. A church verdict couldn't be overturned lightly, after all. The inquisitor, Jean Bréal, mirrored the meticulous strategy of the original inquisitor, Bishop Cochon. He also dispatched investigators across France to interview witnesses. Of course, over 20 years had passed since the original trial, but she was still remembered well by many. Those dispatched to her home village of Don Remy heard from 21 witnesses who all spoke about a quiet, kind and devoted child. A Valcouleur, where she had persuaded the garrison commander to escort her to the Dauphin, they heard from six who described a young woman of singular purpose and irresistible force of will, who persuaded them of her divine mission. Her escort for the perilous trip through enemy country to Chinon recalled that she had been a voice for calm, confident that they would come to no harm, as they were protected by divine will. The most powerful testimony, however, came from the scores of people who have fought alongside her on campaigns. The Bastard of Orléans, now Count of Donois, described how, as soon as Joan arrived in Orléans, the situation changed dramatically. He was in no doubt that she had God's favour, as everything she promised would happen occurred, and all fortune was in their favour. Whenever caution was advised, she called for action, and she was rewarded with victory. Witnesses also painted Joan in a saintly aura. Those that had seen her naked, something unavoidable while on campaign apparently, said that although her body was beautiful, they felt no arousal. Remember that beauty in medieval times was seen as a product of virtue, and sexual impulse as a sin. This was then compounded with stories of how she had no tolerance for prostitutes in the camp, argued against pillage and plunder, and ensured that churches were protected in the cities they took. These were the tangible things that she did and what people saw. But what of her divine mission? This wasn't something that could be witnessed in the same way. Her commanders said that she had the military instincts of an experienced general and the confidence on the battlefield of a seasoned warrior, 
something that her upbringing and gender could not explain. They spoke of miracles that occurred, such as the winds changing at Orléans, and the simple fact that they believed that the battle she won would not have been victories without her intervention. Of course, they conveniently left out the awkward fact that she had been present at defeats as well, such as the failed siege of Paris. Finally, the investigators interviewed those that had witnessed her trial and execution. Those spoke of a dignified and pious young woman, who had endured humiliating questioning for months, and answered the charges with truth, dignity and surety. Now you may note that I've rather whipped through this quite quickly, largely in the interest of time. If you would like to read all of this testimony, as well as that in the original trial and other primary source material on Joan of Arc, I'd highly recommend buying Joan of Arc La Pucelle by Craig Taylor, whose collated and annotated source book has been invaluable to me in writing these episodes. Still, though, many things remained unanswered. There were many people now in the French court who had convicted Joan, who now contorted themselves into all sorts of shapes in order to make the contradictory argument that they had been right to condemn an innocent woman for heresy. These were people that Charles needed to rule his now fully reunited kingdom, not to mention the fact that the king declaring that a clerical court's conviction for heresy was wrong would set a rather dangerous precedent. Eventually, though, an answer was found, and on the 7th of July, 1456, the judges reached their verdict. They declared that they, quote, considered that the actions of the deceased were more worthy of admiration than condemnation. We are amazed at the judgment brought against her by reason of its form and substance. So far, so expected. But next came the face-saving excuse they had spent months looking for. Quote, we say it is very difficult to bring sure judgment in such questions, because, as the blessed St. Paul declared with regard to his own revelations, we do not know whether she had experienced her visions in physical form or as spirits, and so we rely on God in this matter. In case you missed it, basically the argument here is that earthly mortals can't make a judgment on whether a divine vision is really from God or not. This had been one of the main focuses of the original trial. Remember the excruciating detail of Joan's questioning on the corporeal nature of her visions of angels and what they had done. What the judges here are saying is that the only way to prove if they are true is by letting God's will play out and see what happens. And the very fact that the third strand of Joan's proclamation had come true, that of the English being driven out of France, well, except for Calais, but who's counting that, proved that she had been telling the truth. Her conviction, then, had been built on charges that had been brought about in a, quote, malicious, deceitful, slanderous manner, with fraud and spitefulness. The truth was passed over in silence, and false assertions were introduced at many essential points, so that the minds of those who were deliberating and judging could be drawn towards another opinion. This pushed the blame away from the majority of the judges, many of whom were now in Charles's camp, to the small cadre of inquisitors, including Bishop Cochon, who was now, conveniently, dead. With all that in mind, the court declared Joan's conviction, quote, null, invalid, without any effect or value. 
and that Joan had not suffered, quote, any mark or stain of infamy. She was innocent and that she was justified in all of this. They further declare that a holy cross should be erected on the spot on which she was wrongfully executed, quote, in her perpetual memory and to implore the salvation of her and all other faithful departed. Her restitution was complete. Joan was no longer a heretic. She was a heroine once more. Her deeds would no longer sully Charles's ultimate victory. They would enhance them. She had been born into a divided France and had promised that God would reunite the kingdom and drive out the foreign conquerors. Once the sick man of Europe, France in the centuries hence would become the most powerful and feared kingdom in all of Europe. And this was all built on the foundations laid by a peasant girl from Don Rémy. So far in this series, we have already seen how Joan was transformed into a legendary figure while she was still alive. And while it took a bit of a hit during her trial and execution, following her vindication at the nullification trial, there came a remarkable renaissance of her name. Ever since her first meeting with Charles at Chinon, heralds and messengers have been spreading the word of her exploits, and the noise only increased in volume as her victories started to mount. This first life of Joan's was as a national heroine, but mostly through a religious lens. This is best shown through possibly the Middle Ages' greatest female writer, Christine de Pizan. Almost uniquely for her sex, she was a court writer in France. Her work's common theme is that the French monarchy's representation... Her work's common theme is that the French monarchy was descended from ancient Troy and favoured by God through divine ancestors, such as the Emperor Charlemagne and the saintly Louis IX. She had retired in 1418 to an abbey outside Paris, but broke this silence in 1429 with the ditty of Joan of Arc. This work is a hagiography of Joan, completed just after the relief of Orléans, and is a celebration of her successes, thanks to divine favour bestowed upon her and France. It is 61 stanzas long, so I won't read it out in full. But she showers Joan with praise, saying God sent her to untie the English rope that had bound France in servitude. Tepizan compares her to the biblical prophets, Esther, Judith and Deborah, and alludes to the quote-unquote prophecies made by Merlin, the Venerable Bede and the Sibyls to further raise her legendary status. Interestingly, we see the first signs of her future as a feminist heroine here as well. Tupizan writes in a section about the relief of Orléans, quote, Oh, what honour for the feminine sex. God has shown his regard for it, in contrast to all the people who destroyed the kingdom and ran away and quit. Now recovered and saved by a woman who did what 5,000 men could not, and now the traitors are no more. Who would have believed this before? A girl only 16 years old, is this not something supernatural? Who notices little the arms she bears, for she has been brought up for this. So strong and resolute and natural. And not one of her enemies can stand up to her, 
and instead they flee before her and run. She does this all in plain view of everyone. She drives her enemies from France, recapturing many towns and castles. Never was shown any greater strength, not even with 100,000 men in battles. And she is the supreme command of our brave and able men, accomplishing the deeds not even Hector or Achilles had such strength. This is God's doing, and it is she whom he leads. This kind of proto-feminism was actually quite common in early depictions of Joan, including in a biography of her written around 1500 for the then King Louis XII, possibly by another female writer in Anne de Graville. The 16th century also saw a proliferation of books and plays that criticised the ostracisation of women, including The Champion of Women by Martin Lefranc and The Invincible Strength of the Honour of the Female Sex by Guillaume de Belay, which both used the example of Joan to extol female virtue and decry attacks, even those instigated by the church. Joan, of course, now being in part a martyr of clerical persecution. However, the most famous of these is in Guillaume Postel's pithily named work, The Very Wonderful Victories of the Women of the New World and How They Should Govern the Whole World by Reason and Even Those Two Who Would Be Monarchs in the Old World. He dedicated this book to Princess Margaret of France, the sister of King Francis I, and in this, he counsels her in particular to take to heart his chapter on Joan of Arc. He holds Joan up as the ultimate example of female virtue. He says that, quote, God not only shows himself under a male species omnipotent among his own and the god of wars and battles, he shows himself even more clearly in the weakest, most feminine persona than in a male. But so it had to be that the perfect religion should be completed in its perfection and led by the same female sex. Now, these views were far from the mainstream in France, but works like these kept Joan's memory alive in scholarly circles, in a way that celebrated her womanhood rather than diminished it. In a Christian world relatively bare of female heroines, where even Jezebel were more widely known than Esther and Judith, Joan's example as a female Christian heroine was compelling. These early historians had a problem, though, when writing about Joan of Arc, because they were working from an historiographical record that was almost universally hostile. The notable chroniclers of her day, men like Monstrelet, were not sympathetic to her. Her trial records, from which I have been quoting liberally throughout this series, were not dug out of the archives until the 1840s. Therefore, all writers had to go on was hearsay and a desire to fit their narratives around the prevailing propaganda of the day. Probably the most famous example of this is her portrayal in Shakespeare's Henry VI Part I, which, given an Englishman wrote it, is an extremely unflattering portrayal, in which she is variously shown as a fraud, a witch and a liar, who pretends to be pregnant in order to save her own skin. And Joan's story remained somewhat forgotten for some time after this, her story not written about in her own country. What was written over the next few centuries tended to come from abroad. Paul Rapin de Torah, a French Protestant exile to the Dutch Republic, wrote a history of England in the early 18th century, which again cast doubt on the veracity of Joan's visions, saying, quote, I conclude from the examination I have made 
that a man may reasonably suppose that Joan's pretended inspiration was all a contrivance to revise the courage of the dismayed Frenchman. But he was also sympathetic to her fate, saying, quote, I cannot but help reflecting on the barbarous usage Joan met with. Given that he himself had been a victim of religious persecution, it's unsurprising that he sympathised. The Scottish historian and philosopher David Hume took a similar view in his seminal History of England. He was a humanist, and so naturally sceptical of miracles and divine visions, but shared Rapin's horror at her treatment and execution, writing, quote, This admirable heroine, to whom the most generous of the ancients would have erected altars, was, on pretense of heresy and magic, delivered over alive to the flames, and expiated by that dreadful punishment, the signal services, which she had rendered to her prince and to her native country. It was in this period that Joan finally, though, was the subject of a great French writer. Unfortunately for her, it was Voltaire, who wrote a controversial satire of her life called The Maid of Orléans, filled with sexual innuendo and with a disregard for history that would have shamed the writers of Braveheart. The poem was banned throughout France and much of Europe for its smutty content. So, naturally, it was a huge hit, and became one of the best-known sources of information for her life. In general, France failed to celebrate their great heroine through most of the pre-revolutionary period. But there was one city that never forgot her. Orléans. Not only was this the site of Joan's most famous victory, but it was also where her family had settled following their execution. The city ensured that her mother and brothers were well looked after, and in the years following with a short break during the Wars of Religion, in which the cathedral was largely destroyed, Joan was remembered in church services and an annual feast day, which included a parade through the streets. Now, the French Revolution should really have killed off Joan's memory once and for all. She had been a religious, royalist heroine. Two things the revolution despised and persecuted. Indeed, they had their own heroine, Marianne, the half-naked goddess of liberty leading the charge against the enemies of revolution. You will know her from Eugene Delacroix's famous painting Liberty Leading the People from 1830, but she became the symbol of France from 1792 and the declaration of the First Republic. However, Joan had a saviour, and his name was Napoleon Bonaparte. He had rolled back many of the oppressive anti-Catholic laws of the revolution, and saw Joan as an ideal figure around which he could unite his people against the enemies of the Republic, led and bankrolled, of course, by Joan's enemies, the English. His patronage of her saw a proliferation of painting and portraiture from episodes of Joan's life. Perhaps the best of these was a statue of her, sculpted by Etienne Gouat, which portrayed Joan as an Amazon maid, wounded by an arrow, her sword drawn and rolling up an English flag and its base are reliefs of the great episodes of her life, the Siege of Orléans, the receiving of a sword from the king, the coronation of Charles, and her execution. It was neoclassical in style, her medieval past forgotten, along with the religious aspects of her story. The statue has had many locations over the years, and can currently be found in Orléans, on the banks of the Loire. It was at this time that Joan's ancestral home in Don Remy was bought by the state, 
and turned into a museum-come-pilgrimage site. After the second fall of Napoleon and the restoration of the monarchy, the revival in interest in Joan continued to grow, and paintings by Paul Delaroche and Pierre-Henri Rivoil emphasised her links to a French monarchy that was trying to walk France back from its revolutionary past. There was another sculpture made in this time, this time by Marie, daughter of King Louis Philippe, in 1841, that took an introspective look at her, and now stands in front of the town hall in Orléans. But a real renaissance of Joan came not in art, but in literature, when two great French historians looked at her life with new scholarly rigour. The first of these was Jules Michelet, the most popular French historian of his day. His analysis of Joan is incredibly contemporary. Indeed, it forms the basis of most scholarship on her to this day. He had access to her trial records, and so was able to give a thorough accounting of her life. This was the work of scholarship, not theology, and so he cast academic rigour on his work. Notably, he explains Joan's victory at Orléans vastly. Quote, It was not that France did not have able enough soldiers to win back Orléans, but they were not used to obeying the king. This was the age when men obeyed the virgin rather than Christ. They needed a virgin to come down to earth. A virgin, popular, young, lovely, kind, brave. The other great father of modern Jones scholarship was Jules-Étienne-Joseph Kichera, a scholar so learned they named him three times. Being a good academic, he loved nothing more than being buried in an archive, and so spent years digging out all the trial records, translating them and finally publishing them for wider readership. Shockingly, translated medieval legal texts didn't quite reach the leadership that Michelet's sweeping prose did, but it is no less important a resource for modern scholarship. So, the 19th century saw Joan reclaimed as a French national heroine, but her status as a religious paragon had been somewhat lost. However, this also changed in the 1840s, thanks to Félix Dupin-Loup, the Bishop of Orléans. Until then, veneration of Joan as a religious icon had been reserved almost exclusively to Orléans. Dupin-Loup amplified her memory, reinvigorating local celebrations and spreading them throughout France. He wrote, quote, In her I find everything that moves me, including the name of Orléans, that has become mine since God called me to be the bishop of your souls. I like the peasant simplicity in her origins, the chastity in her heart, her courage in battle, her love for the land of France, but, above all, the holiness in her life and death. He also sought to unify the patriotic and spiritual legacies of Joan, writing, quote, Do not think you must choose between the duties of a Christian and those of a Frenchman. Religion points its finger towards the sky, but it does not make us forget our dear country down here. This wasn't enough for him, though. And so, on the 8th of May, 1849, 400 years after Joan freed the city of Orléans from the English, Dupin-Loup petitioned the Pope to make her a saint. This process was one of decades, and was interrupted by war and revolution. French troops had been defenders of the Pope from Italian patriots, and granting Joan sainthood was seen as an ultimate reward. But their withdrawal to fight in the disastrous Franco-Passion War 
slowed the whole process down. However, the shocking French defeat in the war did prove galvanising for Joan's cult within France. The peace treaty that ended the conflict saw Alsace and Lorraine ceded to the new nation of Germany, meaning that Joan's home village of Domremy now sat almost directly on the border between Europe's two most powerful land powers. As part of its national penance for their failure, France built the Basilica of the Sacred Heart of Paris, or the Sacré-Cœur, in Montmartre. At its entrance stand France's two great holy warriors, its saintly King Louis IX and Joan of Arc, both on horseback, Joan with her sword held aloft. This was the first of a vast number of Joan statues that were built in towns and cities across France. They were a call to arms to unite the French people in the inevitable second war that would break out with Germany to reclaim the lost territories of Alsace and Lorraine. In the Pantheon in Paris, the national shrine to French heroes, a series of paintings of Joan by Jules-Eugène Luneveur were installed showing her victory at Orléans, the coronation of King Charles and her execution. These three paintings, which I shall include in the show notes, are probably the most common depictions of Joan and cemented her place as a national patriotic heroine. Until now, the cause of Joan of Arc had tended to be championed by the religious right in France, conservatives who looked back to the days of the Middle Ages with some fondness, but socialists, a growing bead in France, began to take her up as their heroine as well. In Joan, they saw a kindred spirit, a peasant abandoned by her church and her king, alone in defending the people against foreign oppression. She was also the heroine of the common soldier, with privates carrying images of Joan in their pockets to protect them from enemy bullets. She had won an improbable victory for France before against foreign invaders. Now she would help them again. Outside of France, Joan was also gaining traction in the English-speaking world. Pre-Raphaelite painters like Rossetti and Burne Jones took her up as a subject, and the great American author Mark Twain wrote a historical novel about her, portraying her as a kind of female Huck Finn, a heroic country girl whose enemies were the upper-class oppressors and scheming Catholic priests. Meanwhile, the creaking wheels put into motion by Bishop Dupanloup were still kicking into gear. The process amounted essentially to a second retrial, as her life and visions were re-examined to ascertain whether she could be a saint. I won't explain to you the torturous proceedings, because I think we've all had enough of clerical law for one series, but suffice it to say that it took several decades, innumerable hearings, and volume after volume of documents, arguments, and scripture. The principal issue that was holding her back was that Joan was not reported to have performed any real miracles during her life, and these are crucial to attaining sainthood. To be precise, to become a saint, you need to have performed four miracles during your life or after your death. Three were eventually found, or reported by nuns who had been saved from incurable diseases after invoking her in prayer. The fourth miracle well, it was decided that was the saving of France itself from English conquest. With all the paperwork in hand, and after a brief delay known as World War I, Joan was officially declared a saint in May 1920. Interestingly, she was not declared a martyr, as she had not died for her faith. 
Instead, slightly awkwardly, she is celebrated as a virgin on the 30th of May, the anniversary of her execution. Ironically, her sainthood came after Britain and France had ended centuries of enmity and suspicion by signing the Entente Cordiale, and the alliance with the UK and the US during World War I saw Joan of Arc invoked not only as a symbol for France, but for the first time as that of a global freedom fighter. A popular song with American soldiers during the war, called Joan of Arc, They Are Coming For You, invoked her memory, urging her to, quote, Come with the flame in your glance, through the gates of heaven, with your sword in hand, come your legions to command. This internationalisation of Joan continued after the Great War, with probably the most famous play about her, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan, which was first performed in 1924. His Joan is part proto-nationalist, part proto-Protestant, part revolutionary. Indeed, the play ends with Joan having a vision of a future in which she would become a saint, and speculates with her followers whether it was time for her to return to the earth to continue her work. Her followers then abandon her, leaving her to wander wistfully in the final line of the play, quote, O God that madest this beautiful earth, when will it be ready to receive thy saints? How long, O Lord? How long? Around the same time came the most celebrated film about Joan, Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. Taking the trial as its centrepiece, it is a highly emotive and intense film. And while it was not a commercial success at the time, it is now considered a masterpiece of silent cinema. Since then, there have been a number of film treatments of Joan's life, none of them quite hitting the mark, the best of which is probably Victor Fleming's Joan of Arc from 1948, which starred Ingrid Bergman in the title role. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. World War II was, of course, a disaster for France, with the nation literally divided between the occupied North and the Nazi puppet Vichy South, but also politically divided between collaborators and resistors, and both sides invoked Joan of Arc in their propaganda. Marshal Pétain, who ran the collaborator Vichy regime, was a staunch conservative of the old guard, and sought to portray the war as another French fright against British aggression. When the British bombed Rouen, posters went up, with Joan wringing her hand at a second British betrayal in the city where she had been executed. Another campaign in 1944 led with the line, So that France may live, like Joan of Arc, we must kick the English out of Europe. Resistors were cast as Neo-Burgundians, traitors to the true French. The resistance and the free French, led by Charles de Gaulle, instead cast the Germans in the position of the English, and held up Joan as the patron saint of resistance. De Gaulle often invoked her in his radio addresses from London, of course, omitting the awkward point that it was Joan's old enemies that were offering him shelter. In one speech, given on her feast day, he said, quote, Nothing can be compared to the wonderful enterprise of this French peasant girl, whose hard sacred and the popular genius was sufficient to wake up this oppressed nation that was divided against itself. Nothing was more cruel than what Joan of Arc suffered, suffering that began at the beginning of her sacred mission, pushing to cross the mountains of special interests, the intrigues and the incomprehension, 
in order to find the instinctive help and support of the people. A test which ended up with the abandonment, slander and the martyrdom of Joan, and with reaching the goal, saving France. The present is, for the homeland, at least as terrible as was the situation at the time of Joan of Arc's appearance. That which threatens France today, as in the days of Joan of Arc, is not only the danger resulting from the invasion and conquest by the enemy, but also, and most importantly, the national dislocation, this kind of rupture of unity and cohesion of the French before the bankruptcy or the betrayal of those she held for its leaders. We all think now that if France found within itself 500 years ago from the call of Joan of Arc the flame necessary to save itself, we can just as well today find the same flame. And that is why, on this feast of Joan of Arc, celebrated during the hardest phase of this gigantic war, and in the worst moment of our national existence, we only want to gather our minds and hearts in the unwavering confidence in the eternal destiny of France. For de Gaulle, Joan was a national rallying point for survival and victory, and when Paris was liberated in 1944, he wrote in his memoirs that he was pleased to see that all the statues to Joan in the city were still standing. He was not the only World War II leader to be a big fan of Joan. Winston Churchill described her as, quote, the angel of deliverance, the noblest patriot of France, the most splendid of her heroes, the most beloved of her saints, the most inspiring of all her memories, the peasant maid, the ever-shining, ever-glorious Joan of Arc. The nationalist view of Joan, which to an extent shared by de Gaulle and Patin, those are different ends, lives on in France through the far-right Front National Party, which has somewhat taken it over. Its former leader, Jean-Marie Le Pen, used to hold rallies under statues of Joan, and invoked her in his diatribes against immigrants, the EU, and any perceived chipping away at former French glory. That is not to say that the far right owns her legacy. French presidents and politicians of all parties have honoured her at festivities in Orléans, and she is often invoked whenever one wishes to invoke national pride. In particular, the left hold her up as a true daughter of the nation, a peasant girl betrayed by the establishment, who fought for the people. Outside of France, it is Joan's feminist legacy that has endured the most. Things that made her exceptional in the 15th century, her talking truth to power, wearing of so-called men's clothes and so on, are far more commonplace now. Suffragists like the Pankhurst sisters cast themselves as successors to Joan's fight. The same men that told them that they could not own property, vote or have equal rights were the same that had both fought against and betrayed Joan of Arc 600 years ago. Feminist historian Bonnie Wheeler wrote that, Joan proves that self-confidence and independent judgment are qualities so rare and suspect, especially in women, that they are sure to be punished, sometimes by death. Joan of Arc was no feminist. She was not fighting for women's rights. She fought for her god and she fought for her king, she would be utterly bemused by the breadth and richness of her legacy. Pope Benedict called her a prophet of peace, and she is held up as a hero by pacifists like Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa. But in fact, Joan was a paragon of bellicosity, 
frequently and fervently encouraging her armies to kill as many Englishmen as possible until they left France. She was a religious zealot, but has become a hero to atheists and humanists who decried her treatment by the establishment church. She was an ardent French patriot, but surveys have shown that she is better known and even better loved in the English-speaking world than in the French. She was a committed monarchist, but has been championed by socialists, communists and anarchists as a revolutionary against the norms of her time. She died a horrific death, abandoned by her king, whom she put on the throne, but the world she left behind was forever changed because of who she was and what she did. Great man, or in this case, great woman history, is not really in vogue right now. Modern historians like talking sweeping trends and macro changes that have shaped history. But even great rivers can be diverted by a single stone, if shaped and cast correctly. France, and by extension Europe, is what it is today because of Joan of Arc. Her life and her death are a great turning point in history. And there are very few people, let alone women, of whom that can be said. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.